Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So, um, <clears throat> over the last, well, yesterday evening and this morning, we've, um, we've been through certain exercises which I hope have uh, made it fairly clear to you, if it's not been clear before, uh, experientially, what the factors of enlightenment are. Uh, unfortunately, this word, the factors of enlightenment, suggests that this is what you get when you're enlightened. <laughs> First of all, you, you go through all the hindrances, and then these factors suddenly pop up. But uh, you can see that they are just normal attributes. You'd need any of those attributes even to, I don't know, set up a business or do anything. You need, you need to be aware of what you're doing. You need to be concentrated, have the right effort. If you're calm, it's always better. If, you're, um, if you have a sense of uh, interest in what you're doing, uh, all these factors are not um, peculiar to the process of liberation. But if you were setting up a business, you'd have to have business acumen. So what you need in order to uh, achieve liberation is this investigation of the Dharma. That's what turns them into factors of enlightenment. So what I'd like to do is just go through them and show you how they are balanced <clears throat> and to link them in with the five spiritual faculties. Buddhism's great, you know, it's easy. It's five of these, four of those. Ten of them, mix them up, and there you are. <laughs> so these, <laughs> these, five, these five spiritual faculties are faith, uh, <clears throat> effort, Awareness, concentration, and uh, wisdom. Um, yeah, wisdom. It's, it's more like the active side of wisdom. Insight. That's better. Insight. Faith, effort, awareness, concentration, and insight. And the factors of enlightenment are awareness, effort, Concentration, calmness, interest, equanimity, and investigation of the Dharma. Yeah, awareness, <laughs> awareness. You just think if you experienced it, the awareness, knowing, effort. Focus, concentration, calmness, interest, equanimity, and investigation of the Dharma. Yeah? So now faith is um, an essential quality. It's not... It's not to be confused with belief. 
which, you, which we often do. You don't have to believe anything. <clears throat> to believe something would distort your investigation. You'd simply be looking for something that you already believe in. Yeah. So the investigation has to come from a place of don't know, not sure at least. And then it's an open investigation. Otherwise you'll see what you want to see. Mine's very good at that. So this faith is much more to do with a, an attitude of trust, a confidence. Uh, now you need that, don't you? Because without that you don't do, you don't commit yourself. If you lose confidence in your doctor, you don't take the medicine, do you? If you go for a job and you're not confident, you don't take it. If you're in a, in a relationship you don't really trust the relationship, you don't take it further. So faith, that sort of trust, is a necessary for any action, whatever we do. <clears throat> and if there's a lack of it, if, we, if actually what we're suffering from is the opposite, which is a sort of a doubt, a sceptical doubt, which is opposed to, which is not the same as uh, an honest doubt, a wonder, I mean, that's, that's the mind we're supposed to be. See, coming from the position of don't know, we approach things with, I wonder. It's the philosopher's um, emotion. But sceptical doubt is that doubt which gnaws at you. Uh, you can't do that, you're no good, you're useless, you know that. And it's a, it's, I think you'll find that when you investigate it, it's based on fear. Some sort of fear, usually a fear of failure, or a fear of you know a fear that that uh, you truly might not be able to do it. <laughs> yeah? So, if you find that, especially in meditation, and it usually centres on me not being able to do it, I'm special like that. And if you investigate that, I think you'll find underneath it. Uh, some negative states, you see. And by contacting that, by actually allowing that to express itself, you'll undermine um, what may be a habit of self-doubt. And of course, the best way is to just do it, to hell with it. Yeah? There's a, a book, isn't there? Feel the fear and do it anyway. <laughs> so... Listen to the doubt and do it anyway. Okay. Now that, uh, that faith, you see, then links in with this uh, insight business because without the faith, the insight won't come. You see, it bl it's blocked. It won't look. You see, the wisdom won't come. And there are three levels of that. The first is the wisdom that you get from just listening, just, just hearing uh, the teachings. And then there's that wisdom that you get just from mulling it over in your own mind. So it becomes your own intellectual gift, your own intellectual treasure about, about the way life is. But that still remains in a sort of distance. It still, it still doesn't really affect the system. It doesn't, it doesn't dig deep into the psychology until we actually experience it. It's when we experience these truths that things arise and pass away that I am actually causing my own suffering. I've actually seen it. I've actually experienced myself causing my own suffering. And nothing is substantial. It's sort of experiencing that that has 
a systemic effect. Yeah? Actually affects your attitudes, affects the way you speak, affects the what affects what or how you do things, what you do, your ethical behaviour and your livelihood. That's the eightfold path, isn't it? So you right understanding, right attitude, right speech, right action, right livelihood. It's a systemic thing, isn't it? Now that insight, um, that quality within us, this intelligence, panya, which is essentially the Buddha nature within us, this awareness, intelligence, intuitive awareness, or call it what you want, is, um, is a quality within us which is very pure, um, very alive. And unfortunately, it gets caught up in thought Thought is history, isn't it? Every time you name something or label something, you deposit on it a whole history around that subject. Yeah? If you uh, take a simple thing like an apple, so you look at an apple, you don't really look at the apple, you just know it's an apple and that's good enough. You've recognised you know an apple tastes like. And then when you chew into the apple, it, it's either a good apple or a bad apple. It has to fit into the historical perspective of all your experience with apples. And what that does is, it, it, uh, it defines your experience, because you'll only be looking for this experience of apple, in the apple that you're actually eating. So if there are other tastes in the apple, they can either be ignored, or if they are too strong to be ignored, then they're either considered to be horrible or wonderful. Now if you were a wine taster, or a tea taster, you see, then you'd be much more sensitive to the actual taste that was in your mouth, to the actual wine you were tasting. I'm not suggesting, of course. Tea is more ethical. <laughs> Tasting tea, <laughs> green tea, the subtle tastes of tea, washing it around the tongue, you see, trying to come up with a word for it. So bringing that, bringing that intelligence into the actual experience rather than from a given position. See, that's very difficult for us, because we're always coming at life from our history. And that means that we're always trying to manipulate things. We're always trying to change. We're always trying to do something to fit in with the way it ought to be. It should be like this. Did you see Clint Eastwood's film, Unforgiven? Eh? It was a great last line. Do you remember that last line? Where he shot everybody. And the villain, I can't remember his name, he's a very good actor. The villain, his last line is, it shouldn't have been like this. <laughs> Will that be your last line? <laughs> it shouldn't have been like this. So this... Um, this quality of investigation, this intelligence we have, it has to come from this position of don't know. 
Or, if that doesn't, if that's a bit difficult, at least not sure. Not sure. Not sure if I'm really experiencing this in, it, in its fullness. That maybe something's getting in the way, some emotional distortion, some, some intellectual distortion. And that openness, that coming from a position of don't know, is the meaning of equanimity. See, equanimity. Equanimity is that position of total reception, complete passivity. Yeah. Now, we don't mind if it's something that tickles us. Very open to that sort of thing. But if it's something that digs, something that's painful, then you get that pushing away, you get that don't want to know. And it's being able to just open your own heart and mind to whatever the heart and mind wants to give. That is the quality of equanimity. So that's why this quality of equanimity is um, really the greatest of all qualities in the Buddhist teaching. Equanimity puts a balance to everything. Equanimity seeps into love, starting from the position of not wanting. If you want something, your love gets kinked to satisfy this want. If the equanimity is not there with compassion, one slips into grief. If the equanimity is not there with joy, you slip into excitement. And if the equanimity is not there in your meditation, then you won't see. It's not, it's not possible to see because that intelligence is cramped. It's, it's, like, it's like putting on... Uh, you know, sunglasses. It distorts the actual way that we ought to be seeing. You know? It sometimes makes it much nicer. It makes the colours deeper. But it's not the way it is. And we're trying to find out the way things really are. Heaven. So, these three qualities, the faith, the confidence, the willingness to investigate, from a position of not knowing, which can be scary. Who knows what we'll find? Is there anybody there? And this quality of equanimity, just the openness. And on top of that, this inquisitiveness. So all these have to actually be there in some, in some form, at some strength or other. Now, coupled with that, there is this calmness. So, the calmness begins with the body being still. And then, at least in the beginning of a sitting, we can bring a certain calmness to the heart, stillness to the mind, quietness to the mind. And that calmness then, from that calmness base, we can raise the curiosity. And that curiosity is, a, is an emotion, it's a, an attitude rather. And, it's, it, and it, it expresses itself in the emotion as joy. Eh? 
Just think when you've been really interested in something. Joyful, isn't it? Not vigorously pleased. This curiosity, you see, is, is what's lifting that desire to want to know. That's the desire to want to know. <coughs> now, if that, if that desire to want to know is not balanced with calmness, it very quickly slips into excitement. And if the calmness is not electrified, shall we say, with that sense of curiosity, it slips into how should we put it? Quiet oblivion. Sleep to the normal person. <laughs> Which is very restful. Nothing wrong with it. Just doesn't get you anywhere. Nothing to be gained from oblivion. There's a um, story of a Hindu mystic which, which uh, tells you this. And he was extremely good at um, these concentration meditations. So at, um, he asked for somebody to bring some water. And then he went into meditation. And 13, 15 years later, he woke up from his meditation. And his first words were, Where's that water? <laughs> 15 years. So, we have this calmness which begins with the body, in the mind, the heart, and then, as it were, we can find that position of the observer much more easily. Hmm? Now, this, the other two qualities, this concentration with the effort, Sometimes this really gets us very confused. Uh, because in the past, the word concentration has just brought up that sort of tightness, the knitted brows and all that. And so that's why I've tended to use the word focus. It's just the desire to get a bit closer, to get a bit, a bit more refined in the way we're looking. And when you do that, you have to be careful because it does draw effort. And if that effort goes over the top, then you start getting tense. And if it slips too much, then you get this restlessness. Which when it leaks into the mind, you see, with all that energy now, leaks into the mind, off you go on these enormous fantasies. Saving the world, outer space. Might write a book of good. So, that focus, as you... From that position of calmness, you see, when you've established that calmness, to actually go towards the object, as it were, <clears throat> as if you were a, a camera zooming in on something, just getting closer, just, just sort, of, sort of trying to see a bit more clearly, but being aware that of any, of any wrong effort which creates tension. Now, if it's driven by a calm interest, it won't happen. But if this slippage into achievement you see, it's very difficult for us to distinguish that because we've been brought up to achieve something. See? Remember, achievement is always launching you into a future moment. Yeah? It's like you're focusing in on something and with every little movement of focus, you don't want to go, you're just there with that movement. You don't want to go beyond that movement. It's very it's difficult to do that. But 
as soon as if you if you remain in contact with the body, just generally speaking, and you can feel that tension, you just relax, and then you start again. Yeah. So it's a quiet investigation. Yeah. So <clears throat> faith uh, supporting this intelligence, this um, a way of looking so that we're not pulling back on anything. When we enter into ourselves to have that attitude of openness, total reception, equanimity, to draw ourselves to a calmness on the breath, to use the body as, as a place where we can develop just calmness, yeah? to use our internal dialogue, you know, to talk to ourselves in a good way, to encourage ourselves. Yeah? And then with that calmness, when that's established, you see, we sort of raise the curiosity. And with that curiosity, that wanting to know, there's a movement towards the object, as it were, to see it more finely. So, when we start with the breath, it might be just something quite gross. You just feel the breath in the body. As it becomes more and more refined and you find yourself getting, as it were, just even to a, a small spot, just the rising and falling of the abdomen, just a little place there. And for those of you who are established at the, at the nostrils, just one little place there, just inside a nostril or just on the upper lip. See, and that, that sort of confines the looking. So you're microscoping, you see, down into, this, into these sensations. And then, as you, come into, as you come into those moments, just to raise that sort of attitude of now, is this the way it really is, or is my mind conceiving? See? So remember that the mind, the mind takes everything and creates an object for us. I'm sure you've all seen these, um, you know, the, these, um, how the eye looks at a picture, and we see the full picture, but that's not what the eye is seeing. I think you, some of you know that it, the eye scans the picture. It moves around all over the place, dizzyingly. But we're not aware of that. What we're aware of is just this full picture. And that's the magic of the mind. It's always creating real objects for us. See? And therefore, we think of ourselves as substantial. We think of the world as substantial. We think in terms of entities. But even at an intellectual level, we know we're just full of little bits and parts. You can take, you can lose some and still keep going. Yeah. So, knowing that, the question is: When I am observing the breath, what is what is the breath before I call it the breath? See? Is it just one continuous sensation, or is it a myriad of sensations? Is it just one movement? or a myriad of movements. Yeah? So it's with that sort of question mark in the mind, that's the quality of curiosity. Yeah? The question mark in the mind. Sometimes you can put a question in there to raise the, the curiosity, like, what is this? Who am I? Where am I? Haven't said. But, <laughs> but <laughs> it's that... As soon as that question is, is spoken, as it were, to yourself, and you raise the curiosity, forget the question, just look. Yeah, don't start thinking about it. 
So there's that calm, there's balance with curiosity, and then there's just a natural growth of focus, of sort of centering into. Uh, it's like it's like the looking becomes like a laser beam, very still, very pointed. Hmm? And the effort, all the effort you need is just that. It's like the sitting posture. All the effort you need is just to keep the spine up, that's all. Keep the spine energized. Now according to the Buddha's teaching, if you were able to sit like that and not lose your mindfulness for seven years, you'd make it. Yeah. <laughs> now my seven years, he says, seven months. Never mind seven months, he says. Seven days. Unfortunately, he doesn't say seven hours. <laughs> seven minutes, I'd have made it. So keeping, keeping that stillness, that steadiness of gaze, you see. Seven months. Hmm. Well. So... <laughs> These factors of enlightenment uh, are something that you have to uh, develop every time you sit. Every time you sit, you begin with the factors of enlightenment. Right? Now, what did we do at some point? We pulled back from the breath. Hmm? We pulled back from the breath to a different position, a much more relaxed position, where we allowed whatever wanted to be felt to be felt. So this is a from a sort of enclosed place, a little hide, you might say. We found ourselves reaching up into an observation post, and from that observation post, we're as it were transcendent of the body, mind, and heart. So the body is over here; it's got its feelings and sensations, and we can feel them; they're there. Not here, in this observation post. The emotions arise, they're, they're there. They're in the body, they're feeling, I can feel them. But they're not up here, in the observation post. If, if my concentration is very refined, I can see thoughts. Definitely images. And they're there. They're not here, in this observation post. So this observation post that I've discovered, this observer within myself, is a very special position. Hmm? When I'm in that state, and I'm very, very calm, and I turn towards that state, I find that in this state is all the factors of enlightenment. Even though the body may be roaring with pain, even though the heart may be screaming. From this observation post, in this observation post, I find calmness, curiosity, focus, effort, investigation of the Dharma, equanimity and awareness. Everything is within that quality of observing. Everything is within that sati panya, that awareness, wisdom, awareness, intuitive intelligence, intuitive awareness, call it what you want, which has now abstracted itself 
from its confusion with the body, mind, and heart. Those who are mindful are in the presence of Nibbana. That's not me. That is the Buddha. <laughs> Those who are mindful are in the vicinity of Nibbana. From that position, having discovered that position, even though there is a feeling of a self there, and therefore is not, shall we say, the ultimate level of consciousness, at least there we can begin to get the understanding that everything I'm experiencing out there, sensations in the body, feelings, emotions, mental states, images and thoughts, are really out there. They're not me. They're not mine. We have just continued the process which began at birth. At birth we were completely locked into our experience, not knowing the difference at all between the experience and the experiencer. Slowly there's this abstraction so that there's a, a growing feeling of being separate from the world. So the child knows that mum's out there, mummy's out there and I'm here. There's already an abstraction. Slowly, uh, maybe somewhere in teenage, we begin to experience emotions, thoughts as something which are happening to us rather than us being them. So that abstraction of this intelligence from its embeddedness in this psychophysical organism. I like saying that. Psychophysical organism. <laughs> from its embeddedness in this psychophysical... This, this, this embedding is the process of liberation. When you have... When you're in that state of the observer... You're liberated, aren't you? <laughs> so that, when you're in that state and you've come down from it, and at the end of every session, remember to do this little reflection and ask yourself, when I was in that state, was I suffering? When I was the observer, was I suffering? So, <clears throat> that position is a very privileged position. But it's not the end position. The end position is when even the sense of the observer disappears. And we are just observing, just feeling, just experiencing. Now, that can't come about by our act of will. By an act of will, personal will, self-will, we can get ourselves into the observer. I can look at, feel something out there. But the sense of self in the observer, you can't get rid of. Because as soon as you say, go away, another self pops up. <laughs> telling this other self to go away. Yeah, it's not possible, is it? So therefore one abandons that hope. And one keeps looking, you see. Now, when all the factors of enlightenment grow, the concentration with the effort, 
that sense of curiosity with calmness, the equanimity, and the investigation of these three characteristics, the impermanence of things, how we create suffering for ourselves, wanting and not wanting, the insubstantiality, the not-selfness of things. As all that begins to grow, you see, it comes to a point where there's a collapse of this knowing into the state of pure observation. And that's the point because there is no more divide when the knowing and the known and the knower become that one experience. That's the point where the deepest sort of experiences can be had. Yeah? That can't come about by an act of will, that comes about just through the practice of Vipassana. The great thing about insight is that it's immediate. You either see it or you don't. Therefore, these little moments are minuscule in time often. And the meditator often, especially at first, he doesn't even know they've had them. They don't even know that they've had an insight. But it has a systemic effect. And it's often your friends who point out to you that you have changed. Presumably for the better. <laughs> if they say you've changed and you've got worse, <laughs> worry. <laughs> so, these factors of enlightenment and these qualities that we call the spiritual faculties, where we've only added really the quality of faith, are something that we can actively develop. They're the beautiful parts of our nature. And the more you practice them, the more you'll be like that. Which is far better than practicing being depressed. Or being anxious. It's much better. You feel much happier. I recommend it. Now... When we think about all these factors and all this, oh God, you think this is going to be hard work? I've got to think of this, think of that. But luckily the Buddha points out that there is one quality which, if we develop, draws, as it were, all these qualities up to itself. And that's the quality of awareness, which is the quality of simply knowing, simply putting your attention on something. It's a process of attending <coughs> If we can just attend to the breath, attend to feelings, attend to sensations, attend to a thought, attend to an image, all these factors of enlightenment will just grow to support that attending. So happily I can say to you, you can forget everything I've said. <laughs> Not that it's been a complete waste of time, but we can now relax in the knowledge that I don't have to know any of this. All I have to do is attend to the object presenting itself. And everything else will just grow towards that to create the situation where we can begin to understand the way things really are.
So just pausing for a moment and just allowing whatever thoughts might arise. If no thoughts arise, even better. Most of our meditation is, tends to be on the um, painful side of our existence because when we sit and open up to ourselves, it's all the rubbish that comes at first. Just the way it is. It's all the turbulence, all the painful conditioning that we so carefully manufacture throughout our lives. And allowing all that stuff to come up, you see, the depressions and the anxieties, the guilts, the whole gamut of human suffering. Just to allow it to arise and to be with it, to attend to it, to uh, sit amidst the flames, purgatory, in a quiet, gentle way, you see. allows the heart to heal itself. And that's one of the magic, that's part of the magic of this Vipassana, is that you don't have to do anything about yourself. Just watching, the heart will purify itself. The only effort you have to do is to open up to it, to bear with it, that's all. When you cut yourself, who heals a cup? Do the body heal? All you do is keep it antiseptic. You don't go in there and shift cells around. The body heals itself. So it's the same with the heart. If you leave the heart alone, it'll heal itself. But you really have to be open to it. Because the paradox is, or the unfortunate fact is, that the heart cannot heal itself unless it's felt, unless it's experienced. It's just one of those things. If we don't know it, it remains in the system as a turbulence which has not been expressed. Leaks out in peculiar ways of illness and slips of the tongue and things like that. Sometimes these turbulences, remember, come out just as awful feelings. And you never know what they were or why they were. It's immaterial. Huh? Immaterial. And perhaps this evening uh, we can go into that a little bit more deeply so that you connect the process of developing these factors of enlightenment with the process of purification. Hmm? So I just hope you all turn up. So now, time for a bit of walking meditation. And uh, because we're trying to develop this calmness and um, all the factors of enlightenment, don't do the heavy, slow walking or anything like that. Just find yourself walking gently up and down and developing this, this attitude of just quiet abiding. 
If you don't want to just walk up and down, then just go for a walk around the property. Yeah? Or if you want, you can go down the lane here and turn right. If you turn left, you go into the village. If you turn right, you just go through a little wooded area. Hmm? And just keep, just keep relaxing into the present moment. You just feel at ease. And if the mind wanders, you see, note it, stop, bring yourself to your feet or to the breath and start again. Yeah? Just keep relaxing into the present moment. Okay. Very good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.